0: Anybody else get Sports Illustrated in here? No, oh, but three people. <laughs> You're definitely not making them rich, I'll tell you that. Well, okay, so let's pretend I don't get it either. Rick Riley writes a column at the back of the of the magazine, I mean, just a, usually one page. I rarely read it. Um, I don't particularly care for his writing most, most of the time, but um, I just was skimming it the other day, and I saw something that I thought was kind of cool. And let me just read it to you. It's called "Getting a Second Wind." One day, five years ago, bully gorgeous soccer goalie Karina Schuler came home from eighth grade, found her father's revolver in his closet, and fired a bullet into her skull. This is about this is about the lives she saved doing it. Out of a million kids, you'd pick Karina last to commit suicide. She was a popular kid in class in, Lynch, in Lynchburg, Virginia. But then she started feeling sad for no reason. Her parents took her to a therapist who recommended Paxil. But um, but one worry with Paxil is that it can give teenagers suicidal thoughts when they first start taking it. Karina made it through 10 days. The bullet tore a hole in her father, Kevin, who's also that also could drive an 18 wheel that he could, I'm sorry, the bullet tore a hole in her father, Kevin, that you could drive an 18-wheeler through. Karina was Kevin's best friend, the kid who would rollerblade with him as he ran for hours, the kid who'd come home with him <clears throat> and watch uh, oil games and chat with him until his ears hurt. I used to run all the time, says Kevin Shuler, 46. I loved it because it gave me time to think. But after the suicide, thinking was the last thing I wanted to do. Kevin, and, um, an, investor in public, I'm sorry, an investigator in the public defender's office, and his wife, Christy, a hairstylist, were able to think one clear and brave terrifying thought during the six days Karina survived after the shooting. They decided to send her organs like gifts. Her green eyes would go in one, in one direction, her glad heart another, her kidneys still another, her liver and her pancreas went somewhere else. And her two good lungs, the ones that played the saxophone, went to Gainesville, Georgia, to a man named Lynn, uh, I think it's Giger, who was close to dying, that so close to dying he was practically pricing his caskets. A runner and a swimmer, a non-smoker, Giger found himself one day, (coughs) Giger found one day that he had only enough breath for walking or talking, but not both. Turns out that genetic emphysema, also known as alpha one, and a lung transplant was the only hope for his survival. He was on he was on his fifth year of wait on a waiting list, and life wasn't worth living. He says when and he said when Karina pulled the trigger, Giger received those two young lungs six days later in an operation at the University of Virginia, Virginia Medical Center. Now this is where the story gets good. Giger, now 48, went from 15% lung function to way above average for his age. He got a second win and a second life. He was so grateful that he wrote Karina's parents to say thank you, and the letter changed everyone's life. Karina's parents wrote back, and Giger asked to meet with them, and next thing you knew, Giger was at a bittersweet gathering that became soaked with every kind of tears. When the Schuler's... And their daughter uh, Colby, now sixteen, gave Giger a photo album of the girl whose life was now inside of him. <coughs> inside of I'm sorry, they gave him a photo album who's with the girl whose life is now inside of him. She starts out as a beautiful baby, Giger says. Then she's a little girl in a Halloween costume. Then a gorgeous teenager, and then the pictures just stop. It was the saddest thing I've ever experienced. Hours later the group was partnering was, uh, was parting when uh when, when Christie said, Lynn, can I ask you a favor? She walked over and stood before him. Anything, Giger said, can I put my hands on your chest for just a second? And she stood there crying as she felt her dead daughters her dead daughter breathe. Kevin turned to Kevin started to run again. I'm sorry, Kevin started to run again, and someone had a great idea. Why didn't he and Lynn run together? So they did. They ran the eight K together step by step next to each other. One man's one man's overflowing joy coming straight from another man's bottomless sorrow. The whole run Kevin, that, that whole run, Kevin never shut up. It was so unlike him that at the end Giger asked him why? I had to, Kevin admitted, because every time there was silence, I could hear Karina breathing. Next time they ran a half a marathon, then a full one. By then, though, the steroids that Giger had taken for years just to stay alive had damaged his joints, and he was running on artificial hips. The best he could do was run was uh, the best he could do was race walk. At the 17 mile mark, his hips were screaming, but he refused to quit. He took, it took them six hours and twenty-five minutes, with Schuler matching him step by agonizing step. But they finished, hands clapped together, the three of them. Kevin and Christy aren't whole yet, but they're getting there with their lives. And Giger, meanwhile, is relishing his. He met the woman. Christ, he met a woman, Christina. Married her, and they named their first baby after Karina. Eva Karina. Something. He stares. Um, sometimes he stares at her. Odd, I know. Without Karina, I'm not here today, and neither is as Eva Karina. Sometimes life just takes your breath away, doesn't it? Whew! You know, I read that um, story and kind of thrashed it reading it out loud, but um, I was just thinking about. This morning I woke up, and I said this in prayer this morning, uh, in the prayer time this morning, but I woke up with the, just the phrase, or just the word, koinonia in my mind. And I remember years ago, Bill did a teaching, in fact, I was asking him if he remembered it, on the book of Acts, we're going to look at it in just a few minutes, but we talked about the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread and prayer. And this morning I woke up, and I don't know, that had to be more than 20 years that You did that first series, at least. And I woke up with that, that, um, just the word uh, koinonia. And I remember the first time I ever heard that word is when Bill did that series, and he was teaching us what koinonia was. And, and And I was thinking this morning about what it really means to have fellowship. And Bill taught us many years ago that he did a word study on that word, and I remember part of that word study was about the fact that koinonia wasn't just hanging out together, but it was exchanging life. And giving life giving life to somebody who gives life back, and when I read that story in Sports Illustrated um, a week or so ago, I just cut it out. I never do that I've, I don't think I've cut out three articles in my whole life. I cut it out and I just taped it to the back of my binder because as I was reading, I thought, this is so such a prophetic declaration that the life of Jesus still breathes to us. And that, you know, when she was talking about it, I don't know if it was clear as I was reading it, but she said, she said, can I just touch you so that I can feel Karina, her mother said to, to the, the man who had, his, had her lungs, can I just touch you so I can feel, him, feel her breathe again? And um, there's just something about exchanging life with Jesus in a way that, the, that Jesus becomes such a part of your life that when people hear you breathe, they hear the life of Jesus through you there's something about there's something about so um, so digesting Jesus into your being that 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 this that this life exchange it's like you give he gives your his life for you and you give your life for him and it's actually Jesus that's in you that people hear and see and want to touch and feel and um bill shared the other day on a scripture and it kind of inspired me I just wrote this I just went home that night and just wrote this down real quick and It says this, when, uh, when Jesus said that we must eat his flesh and drink his blood, he wasn't talking about cannibalism, but he's referring to ingestion that leads to incarnation. Christ was the word that became flesh. It's important that we ingest the word of God in the way that causes us to digest his life until Christ is literally formed in us. Ingestion without digestion would lead to feeling full but not being transformed. Digestion is more than just a taste test it's a full meal of his presence that conforms us into his image there's an old saying that is true in this case you are what you eat many people ingest the bible but they don't digest the living active word of god Ref- religion fills their souls but never satisfies the long- their longing for real life digestion requires a simulation not just consumption truth has never meant to just be counted i'm sorry truth was never meant to just be recounted. It was intended to be experienced. When we exchange the communion meal for a dinner commentary or a cookbook, we deprive ourselves of the privilege of abundant life and relegate ourselves to a meager existence in the kingdom. Jesus never intended us to be full of religion, but he desired us to be filled with the Spirit. Christ is the ultimate happy meal, and as we digest him, we become one flesh with him. That's why Jesus prayed that we would be one, even as the Father is in, even as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you, that they may all be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given to me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, that the world may know that you sent me, and love me, even as you have loved them. Christ is not talking about his disciples getting along with each other here. He was describing the unity between the babe and the bridegroom where the intimacy of intercourse assimilates into one flesh. When we come to the communion table and eat the flesh of our king, we become an inseparable unity that causes the world to experience his presence every time they encounter us. In other words, when they see us, they have seen the Father. We are, we are Christ to the world. I don't mean that we just preach Christ to the world. I mean that, that people should experience Christ whenever they meet us because it is Jesus who is being formed in us. As a matter of fact, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. When people experience us preaching the word without becoming the word, the gospel gets reduced to a mere philosophy and principles, principles to be argued and words to be wrangled over. But when the Word becomes flesh and dwells among, among them, they find themselves pierced to the heart, convicted in the, death, and convicted in the very depths of their souls. It's encumbered upon us as the people of God to preach Christ wherever we go, and only, if necessary, use words. Turn to Acts 2.42. You know the message may have gotten lost in all those words, but my point is this, that Jesus wants us to be so filled with Him that when people encounter us, they've encountered Him. Huh. I know that was a lot of words to say that. But Jesus wants, he wants, to, he wants us to so assimilate Him that when people meet us, they've met Him. Just like the man who had Karina's lungs. I mean, his mother said, Would, can I lay hands on you? Can I, can I just touch you while you breathe? And his father said, I had to keep talking because every time I stopped talking, I could hear Karina breathing through you. What, what happens when you have an encounter with God? And I think Kev, Kevin's kind of famous for saying that we want to have an encounter so that we can be an encounter. And how many of you know that, that it's like the gospel can be introduced by words, but it can't be reduced to words? Are you with me? The gospel of the kingdom can be introduced by words, but it can't be reduced to words. In other words, if your gospel is just something you believe and, but, not, but you haven't experienced, you haven't, assimilated, you haven't assimilated the Christ that makes you an encounter that people, when they see you, they've seen the Father. Memorizing the Scripture is good, but memorizing the Scripture doesn't mean that you've assimilated the Christ. Okay, memorizing the Scripture means that you've memorized the Scripture. Huh, that was deep right there. How many of you know what I mean? And God wants us to move from just, from just, you know, recounting the Scriptures to actually encountering the Scriptures so that we become an encounter and so that we become an encounter. And that encounter that we have isn't, you know, when we encounter the Father, how many know that there's, like tonight, when Kathy and Brian and the team were leading worship, hopefully you were encountering the Father. I, I would like to say I encounter the Father every time I worship, and I'm, I'm not aware that I am every time. But the goal is to encounter the Father as we worship. But how many of you know that it's equally as important that we encounter Christ when we fellowship with each other? That I, don't, I need Jesus this way, but I also need Jesus this way. That there is something in God that He will not provide outside of you. There is, it, is, it, is planned. it is God's plan that you would find Christ personally and that you would find Christ corporately. And if your personal if your personal relationship with Christ doesn't include your corporate relationship with the body, you only have half a relationship. And what happens when you only have half a relationship is you may not realize it, but you're hungering for more than you have. And my concern recently is how people feel, how people fill those voids of the of the horizontal relationship that they lack in Christ. Acts two forty two. This is the scripture that Bill taught out of uh, did a. uh, a long series on it. I won't forget it. It was really impacted my life. In fact, let's just go back to uh, probably verse 40. So with many other exhortations, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. He would just preached to thousands. And so those who had received the word were baptized, and they were at it that day, about 3,000 souls. Listen to this. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking of bread and to prayer. Now, you know, um, in First Corinthians 12, when uh, Paul is talking about the um, the uh, offices of apostle and prophet, he says first apostle, second prophet, and then he goes on to teachers and so forth. And that word first there means first in rank. Here he 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 labels um, they they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayer. I don't want to presume that those are in some kind of order because he doesn't say first the apostles' teaching, second fellowship. But I do want to say that as, as Luke was writing the book of Acts, what was on the top of his mind was that the apostles' teaching... If you were making a list, if I was making a list of spiritual disciplines or or what would impact the community the most, I would say, you know, I probably would put prayer first, teaching second, are you with me? Um, you know, having meals together somewhere, maybe fourth, maybe, you know, and fellowship would be, you know, fellowship is something you do when all the important stuff's over. But it's amazing to me that... Although that we, we can't we can't make a case that that you know fellowship is more important than prayer and I, I'm definitely not trying to say that I am saying that it it, was, it is significant that Luke mentions it second that in this season of their lives of the life of this three thousand who got saved that one of the most profound things that Luke remembered second was that the fellow, the fellowship they were having was transforming them I want I want to just kind of go on to read you. So they were continually devoting themselves to apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread and prayer. Listen to this. Verse 43 is the outcome. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. And many signs and wonders were taking place through the apostles. And all those who believed were together and had all things in common began selling their property and possessions and sharing with all as anyone would have need. And day by day they continued with one mind. Everybody say one mind. In the temple, breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart praising God having favor with all the people and the Lord adding, was adding to their number day by day all those who were being saved that's a profound statement i remember one of the statements that bill made many years ago he said they were continually devoting themselves which how many of you've ever had something that you did that actually was that took sacrifice and you had to devote yourself to it over and over three of you did One of the points that I remember that Bill made as I was thinking about it this morning when I woke up is that there are things, there are things in our lives that if we don't continually devote ourselves to that, you know, they, you know, I think prayer for me is one of those. When I'm talking about prayer, it's like there's a certain kind of prayer I do naturally, and then there's another kind of prayer that, that in order for that to keep going in my life, it does, one, one devotion doesn't do it for me. You know what I mean? It's kind of something I have to like, I have to, like, make a commitment to do it again. I have to remind myself, hey, this is really important. And and fellowship was one of the things, and I want to talk some about fellowship tonight. Uh, fellowship is one of those things that, um, that, we ha- that we have to recommit ourselves to because fellowship doesn't mean that you come to church and look at the back of somebody's head. You go, well, I do fellowship really well. I mean, you know, we come to church, you know, twice a week and... Say hi to everybody, and I am even greet people when they're in the bathroom and in the stall. Dude, I'm a fellowship hog. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about having people in your life that you're actually finding Jesus in, and they're finding Jesus in you, and there's an exchange of life that, that the people they are actually, they're actually getting some of their Jesus need met by having a relationship with you. Are you with me? and when that doesn't happen people start to get hungry for th- for that i mean let me say this that if you are a christian you're hungry for that horizontal relationship as well as that vertical i mean you you are hungry for it i mean it's natural it's a natu- it's natural in you to want this and this if you only have this and you don't know how to you know make friends make connections and we're going to we're going to talk a little bit about that there is something lacking in you and if you, don't, if you don't find a way to fill it, I've watched so many people in the last three or four years fill it with something unhealthy and not really know what's wrong. Are you with me? Listen to 2 Corinthians 6.14. Do not be bound together with unbelievers for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness or what fellowship has light and darkness. Now this is a great scripture and I know we can preach about being friends with the world or whatever. But here, here's the only point I want to make from, from this. Paul said in, in Corinthians here, do not be bound together with unbelievers for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness or what fellowship has light and darkness. There's a difference between friendship and fellowship. How many of you know that it's all right to be friends with the world, not in the way that James talks about it, where you know, you're, you're, um, you're a friend in, with the world in a way that you're an enemy to God. Like, my, my friends keep me from serving God. And, and the way that James is talking about it's, it's almost like your friends are your God. You know, we meet people, it's like, they're not going to give up their friendships for their God. But how many of you know that there's a difference between having friends who don't know God and having fellowship with people who are in darkness? Are you with me? There's a difference between... How many of you know, how's the world going to know that Jesus loves them if you do aren't friends with them? There, it's, it's, it's healthy to have people who don't know God that you, you know I've been telling you about my friend who, who keeps writing me, the producer who, who I met on a plane, you know, and he, he wrote me again this morning, you know, I'm coming to see you. It's awesome. You know, it, I mean, how are people going to know that Jesus loves them if they don't get to touch the breathing lungs of Jesus themselves? They need Jesus, too. And how many of you know if they don't have this at all, the first Jesus they meet is you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And most of the world encounters Christ through you before they encounter Christ to them privately and personally. Now, I know there are exceptions, but how many of you know that they need... But there's a difference between fellowship with darkness and friendship with people who don't yet know God. You can't exchange... You can't, you can't have fellowship in the way the Bible describes fellowship. Now, see, part of the struggle is we think of fellowships like we... Hey, we're going to have a, you know, we're having this fellowship at my house. Why don't you come bring all the unbelievers? And so when I, say, when I use that word, don't have fellowship with darkness, we're, we eliminate people that, oh, well, we can't invite these people to home group. No, no. The way we've been using the word fellowship is not the way the Bible uses the word fellowship. The Bible's talking about I give life to you, you give life to me, and I can't have that kind of relationship with darkness because the life that they have is darkness. I'm not talking about isolation. I'm talking about allowing yourself to be fed from the table of darkness. You can't allow yourself to be fed from the table of darkness. Are you with me? Proverbs 1 says that, that, that you can't seek counsel from the wicked. Now listen, I want to be careful here because I've been trying to build in my own heart and hopefully in your heart an honor and respect for people who don't know God. So when we start calling those people wicked, it creates a mentality that I think needs to be broken over the church. But I am talking about the fact that when we're talking about life issues and making decisions for life, we can't eat from from the table of darkness. So we can't exchange life on that level. This takes wisdom. We can't exchange life on that level with darkness. And, and actually, the only point I was really trying to make out of this is that there's a difference between friendship and fellowship from God's perspective. So sometimes we, we, we come to church and we go, man, I'll have such good friendships. You may be having friendships that don't include fellowship. I want you to think about that. Can you have a friendship that doesn't include fellowship? Well, you know, you can. I, I think you can because lots of times people don't open up and do heart-to-heart stuff in their friendships. Um, John chapter four. Uh, Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, and she's asking him, "I don't, you know, there's." I've heard so many renditions of this, of her conversation, and you know the way you perceive. It's very difficult sometimes. You ever write a letter to somebody, and you say something, you share facts with them, and they write back and they assume that you're mad at them, and they're like, oh. "I'm like, oh my goodness, that's not what I meant." So you know sometimes I wonder the way that we read the scriptures is maybe not being represented by the emotion of of the moment, you know, but anyway, Jesus is having this conversation with the woman at the well, and he starts to tell her about her seven husbands that i mean yeah seven husbands and the guy she's living with and you know I, I don't know what it would be like, but that would be a little unnerving if I was talking to jesus i I would be a little bit like, "Oh my goodness, he knows everything i've done and." I don't know if you've ever walked into somebody's office who suddenly knows everything about you, but the thing that kind of comes to your mind if you have any insecurity at all is all the things you've done wrong. And so, you know, she starts to say to him, you know, uh, you know, um, let's have a theological talk and move this out of the personal realm. Like, um, they say it's over here on this mountain we should worship, and and Jesus makes a statement to her that I think's um really profound, and if I could find it, it would really be profound. I, I think it's um, John 4. Yeah, John 4, verse 23. Jesus says this. Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation from the Jews. Listen to this. But an hour is coming, and now it is. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such the people, everybody say people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. And that, that word truth there is, means, obviously it means according to the scriptures, but the word truth there means with nothing hidden. How many of you know that part of having fellowship is that you have a relationship where there's nothing hidden? Where you can be real? That's why I believe you can have friendships that don't, that don't really include fellowship because sometimes we have friendships where we keep our walls up and we do social stuff together, which is all good. It's, it's not wrong. Just, I guess I'm saying don't think just because you have friendships that you're getting the fellowship need met in your life because, friends, because fellowship is deeper than friendship. Fellowship means that we're exchanging life, and you can't do that with your armor on. Do you, you know, um, this is my opinion, but I believe there are times to take your armor off. I think that it's very dis- difficult to have an intimate relationship with people, and I know this is a metaphor, with your armor on. And there are other places I won't even go without my armor on. <laughs> How many of you know what I mean? There are places that you need to keep your armor on, but it's very difficult to have fellowship with your armor on, you know. One day, I was, I, when I first came here... Oh, I do not want to tell you that story... <laughs> I, re- I remember the moral of that one and it wasn't good so forget that story <laughs> Bill just saw maturity in action right there he's like I don't think I've ever heard him not say it and then regret it You know sometimes we've had meetings that I just want to put a I put a want to put a banner up over all, every door that says leave your armor at the door Leave your weapons at the door. Come in unarmed. Because you, you've got to take your armor off. To have, It's funny to me, people come to church, come to church, come to church. And when I used to do counseling a lot um, before Danny got here, um, Dan, and Dan, Ellen, and Danny, and, uh, Dan, Ellen, and I were the main counselors. And man, you, know, you can't, you can, it's hard to imagine how many meetings people can go to and still feel alone. I mean, I can't tell you how many people I talk to, and I'm like, you know, you need, you need to go, you know, w- w- that's what cell groups are for. You need to get involved. It's like, I go to two cell groups a week, I'm at every service. And I'm like, okay, this is more than going to meetings, isn't it? This is a skill of learning to take off your armor and live with nothing hidden. I'm not, you know, I'm not even talking about, like, you have a secret sin you don't want anybody to know about. It's like... You know, someone's going to find out my past and not like me. I mean, that could be the issue, and of course there's those issues. I think there's an art, uh, there's a skill that some people don't learn in families because their families are so unsafe that they never bond to mom and dad. And so, you know, when you grow up in a crazy home and your family's unsafe, you wear your armor to bed. You know, this is a metaphor. You wear your armor to bed, and you're so used to wearing it all the time that when you come to places where you really would love to be loved, you see everyone else being loved, and you can't figure out why you go to the same meetings, have some of the same conversations, but they don't fill your soul. And so there's something about, like, like learning how to be vulnerable. You know, some people... Yeah. Well, let me just quote a scripture to set up what I'm about to say. Proverbs 27, 7 says... A sated man loathes honey, but to a famished man... Oh, no, nah, that's the wrong one. Man, that's a good scripture, though. Proverbs 30, 21. Listen to this. Well, actually, it is a great scripture. A sated man loathes honey, but to a famished man any bitter thing is sweet. Proverbs 30 is the one I want, though. Under three things the earth quakes, and under four it cannot bear up. Under a slave when he becomes a king, a fool when he's satisfied with food, food, under an unloved woman when she gets a husband. The world can't hold up under an unloved woman when she gets a husband. Now, I know that there's a dimension there that the Proverbs talking about. Solomon wrote that, you know, what happens when an unloved woman gets married. But I've also watched what happens when unloved people get the husband, Jesus Christ. There, there's, there's something about, you know, there's, so here's the dichotomy. Either they, why is somebody unloved? Well, I guess there could be lots of reasons. They could be unlovely in that they sabotage their relationship with everybody. Or they could be unloved because people love them, but they leave their armor on so it never, they never feel loved. And what happens to a person who never feels loved? I'm going to tell you that if you show them any attention, listen, this isn't the spirit of seduction that Solomon's talking about here because he talks about that in in a totally different attitude. A spirit of seduction is a totally different thing than this. This is somebody who's never been loved, and you know what happens if you manage to get through the cracks of their armor and love them? You You become their savior. And they get an unhealthy bond with you, and they want you to be with them all the time and they become jealous of anyone else that you have a relationship with and it gets really weird. I don't think I've ever told this story publicly, and I, I think I think Kathy would be fine if I told you the story though. I'm looking over there. Years ago, many years ago, probably 15, probably, somewhere around there. 15 years ago, we had an auto parts store in Reading, and I used to drive back and forth four or five days a week. And I had um, one of my employees who was a gal, who was also our driver, she drove back and forth to, to Reading every day, too. So one day I said, Well, why don't we just ride together? and we'll just change your schedule so we get off at the same time, because she, she got off at a different time, and I said, that would just save us both a lot of driving, you drive one way and I'll drive the other, so we just kind of did that, and, and so we're driving back and forth, I don't know, eight, nine months, we drove back and to, forth together, and, and um, we just got a really good relationship, and, and I, I had known her for many, many years, and it was a friend of our families. and her husband worked for me in four different places, and anyway, we had this really good friendship, a great friendship, and our kids grew up together, and everything was great. And we just had this kind of relationship that that we talked. You know, it's one of those people you can just about talk about anything. And so we just talked and shared. And, you know, they, they, they had struggles, and we talked, and we had business struggles. So we talked, and she worked for me. So it was a really good, we just had this great relationship. And then one day, she calls my house. This is like, I've known her for many years, and we were probably driving back and forth maybe eight, nine months she calls my house and she's on the phone and I'll just call her Jane her name's not Jane she says um, I pick up the phone hi and she's on the phone and she's kind of crying I say well are you alright what's going on she says you know I just want to tell you that when you were singing me love songs today that you really touched my heart and I knew that you loved me but I'm like what I thought she was teasing you know because you know I'm a teaser right So I thought she's kidding me, you know. So I'm like, ha, ha, ha. (laughs) Now, Kathy could tell you this is my rule. This is my rule all the years we've been married. If I have any attraction whatsoever to a woman, I will have no relationship with her. That's been my my covenant with God. If I have an attraction to a woman, I will have no relationship with her. Not because I don't trust her, because I don't trust me. Just make it really clear. So if I have attraction to her, I'll keep her at a distance for my sake. So I have no attraction to this woman whatsoever. None. Zero. None. If I was going to be attracted to someone, it wouldn't be her. (laughs) So I'm on the phone and she says, when you were singing me love songs today, singing love songs to me, I just, you know, I just knew that it was just, and she starts crying on the phone, you know, and I know you've been like making moves toward me for nine months and, I just wanted to tell you that I just feel like I've been like trying to fin you off. And I'm like, what the heck are you talking about? And so so she talks for about three more minutes. And I go, Kathy, take the phone. It's Jane. I go, tell Kathy what you just said to me. And she tells Kathy the same thing. And Kathy's looking at me. and She's like, he's crazy. I said, I know. She's crazy. And then so... See, Kathy tells her, you know, hey, you know, I don't know what, what was happening. Well, Chris was singing songs. He sings all the time. He wasn't singing to you. Oh, no, he was singing to me. No, he was singing while you are in the truck. He does that. He sings in the truck. And she was just going on and on and on and on. And then she tells Kathy, if I can't have him, I'm going to kill myself. And I'm thinking, well... <laughs> I hate for us to solve it that way, but (laughs) No, I mean, I really love this girl. This is a nice girl, but not in any of that way So Kathy has this conversation with her and And then obviously from that day forward we don't drive in the truck together Chris don't, I didn't even sing for months, even to myself. I'm like Don't sing to anybody because I mean that's how that's why I don't sing anymore cuz people just get attracted to me. It's just too much for them to handle. So I'm like I'm like, "Oh my god, I can't even believe this is happening." This happens to other people. This doesn't happen to me. I'm, I can't even. Believe, and she's repeating things I said, and I'm like, I totally said that. I wasn't talking about anything like you and me. Or I'm like, oh my goodness, how did she get that in her brain? Oh my god, I'm so sorry. So I said, I'm really sorry, you know. And Kathy met with her, and you know, I met with her, and I said, you know, Jane, this is. I'm really sorry. Like, I don't know why you thought that, but it, that isn't in me. And she's telling Kathy, you know, if I can't have him, I'm going to kill myself. And she's depressed and she doesn't come to work. And oh my God, what am I going to do, you know? And so we go on like that. And we kind of like, you know, of course I don't ride with her anymore. And everything's, you know, I mean, she's like walking, but she's, she doesn't want to talk to me, which is totally fine. I'm all right. I am i do not want to say anything. I'm like, <laughs> you know, I don't want to say anything. I'm concerned that she'll just like get it wrong. You know, hey, I like that uniform you have on, you know, the one I gave you. (laughs) Oh, you're You know, whatever. I'm like, okay, let's let's not do that. So uh, months go by, like six months. And I'm afraid she's going to get up in church one day and go, I must have you or some crazy thing, you know. So we get off that phone with her, Kathy gets off that phone with her, and I call Danny. And I say to Danny, listen, this is what happened. This is exactly what I said. This is exactly what I did. If I remember anything else, I'll tell you. I have no, no, listen, this is it. I have no attraction to this woman. None, never have, never would. Wouldn't ride in a truck with her if I did. He's like, yeah, I got it. I said, okay. So, so things go on. They kind of smooth out. Everything's kind of going smooth, and I'm like, I always have a knot when she's around. I'm like, what's she going to say? Because for weeks she kept telling Kathy, I really love him, I'm loving him, I love this man. And I'm like, oh God, this is a fatal attraction deal. I mean, I can't blame her. You know I'm being funny. It wasn't funny. It really wasn't funny. And so, and she goes to our church, too, you know, so... And she's part of my prophetic team. Which so, just a month goes by. I don't remember how long, but a season of time. When things smoothed out, it looked like we were having a healthy relationship. She's actually smiling at work again. I was smiling at her, and we had this distant relationship. But it, was, it seemed like as close as you can get to normal with whatever she was thinking. And so, um, we're in the prophetic. We're having this prophetic meeting. And somebody says, uh, and, and, and Danny we, I had about 30 or 40 teams. This is when we, were, we had about 40 people. Prophetic team that I led. And, and she was part of that. Had been part of it for years. And so um, so once one night, it's on a Wednesday night, we're all together. And someone says, hey, let's prophesy over you tonight. I'm like, okay, well, that's good. So I get in the middle and they start prophesying over me. And it goes like two prophecies. And then it's her turn. It's not her turn. She takes a turn. And in the prophecy, she says... She starts prophesying that her and I are supposed to, like, be together. And uh, (laughs) and Danny's in his office, which is about 40 yards from me. And this lady's doing She's like, you know, and she starts telling everyone that I was in love with her. This is in the prophetic teams. I turn to someone and say, go get Danny. Go get him now. (laughs) So they run out and get Danny. (laughs) And she doesn't even know what's going on. And Danny walks in there, and she's finishing up her, whatever that thing was she was doing to me. It was weird. It was really weird. And so, you know, he took her into the office, and whatever they did, whatever they did, I don't know if it worked or not. From that day on, it was like, you need to go work for somebody else, because we just can't be in the same, like, county. (laughs) <laughs> Something's not right. But I can tell you, like, this gal is a really nice gal. And, you know, her, her father abandoned her. Her mother was a drug addict. Her husband was a drug addict. In and out of drugs. You know, got clean. Didn't stay clean. They had almost no relationship, which is part of what we talked about, which I thought I was counseling her. Evidently, she was telling me her life story. I thought I was helping her with their marriage. And she had no connection. And then when she found somebody... Who knew how to love? She was starving for love. When she found someone that she'd open up her arm or two a little bit, and I'd start to like just tell her that God loved her and that she had a plan. You know, they had a plan for. Love. I mean, just show her like normal brotherly affection. She had never had it before, and she was like, "You are my savior." Do you know what I'm saying? What happens when people who are unloved or who have never opened up to anyone They open up to you. (laughs) Okay, that's enough said about that subject. Gosh, just visiting that makes me sweat. I thought that was over. I think I need to go get sozoed again. (laughs) Oh. Hebrews 13:16 says, Do not neglect doing good, sharing, for such sacrifices God is pleased. The word sharing there is the word koinonia. So let me read it to you again. Do not neglect doing good and fellowshipping for such sacrifices God is pleased. How many of you know that no, I said that, this is really weird. How many of you know that fellowship is supposed to be a sacrifice, not that kind of sacrifice. like you're supposed to sacrifice your marriage or whatever, but you're supposed to sacrifice How many of you know to actually have a deep relationship with people? It's a relationship. A fellowship goes beyond convenience. Fellowship means that you have relationships with people that they can inconvenience you and you don't feel inconvenienced. Or maybe if you do feel inconvenienced, you still open the door when they keep knocking because it's your friend. Because you know that you have people in your life that you make life connections with and that they draw life from you in a healthy way and you draw life from them and, they, and, this, and, this, and this community, not just a person, but this community becomes one, part of the life-giving source of Jesus in your life and you make sacrifices to continue that relationship because it takes sacrifice to move that deep. I can't tell you how many times in my life that, that people have entered, that, I, that I've had those kind of relationships with people that, that I will never forget my whole life. I remember Charlie in uh, Harper. I don't even know if Charlie's here. He's on vacation. Thank God he needs a vacation, man. That guy's been working like a dog. But I remember Charlie, Charlie and Kirk Alderson. I think Kirk's here. Where are you, Kirk? I think you're here. Raise your hand. Stand up just for a second. This is my good friend, Kirk. I remember that um, we we they had a business in Weirville. We had a business in Weirville, and we were like we were like partners. We were friends, and we talked honestly with each other and opened up our heart, but not just about business stuff. But and we, we gave each other permission to correct each other and love each other, and we did a lot of that. We corrected each other, and sometimes they would have a struggle with an employee or whatever, and I I'd talk. Man, that's a really a bad attitude. I think about, and they do the same thing for me and talk to me. And when I I had an auto parts store, and, and I. Decided to open another auto parts store in Reading, And I, I was drove by this, this building in Reading, this empty building, and I thought I heard the Lord say, this is your next parts store. So I went to see Charlie and Kirk, and I sat down with them. We spent, I don't know if you remember this, about six hours in your office. And we sat there, and I laid out the whole plan. And I'm, I'm pretty convincing, like I'm a, I'm a good salesman. And so I, but what happens with your friends is they can see be, below your marketing plan. See, if you're open with people, they can see below your marketing plan and they can look into your heart. And so I'm giving them like, I had this you know, this whole thing and I was sharing with them my, my marketing plan and what I was going to do and this vision that I felt like the Lord gave me and, and they listened really intently, asked lots of really good questions and when we got all done, when I got all done presenting it, they both looked at each other and they said, this is the wrong time, you shouldn't do this. It's going to kill you, you're going to lose everything if you're not careful. And I said, da-da-da, we talked back and forth. And, and so... Um, well, there's, this is a longer story. The short story is I did it anyway. I did it anyway. And, and, they, and they blessed me. I did it anyway. They said, I don't think you're doing the right thing, but whatever. So I did it anyway. And then the short story of that is I lost everything. <laughs> everything. Gone. House. Lost our house. The house our kids grew up in. We built ourselves. Gone. Everything. Lost everything. But two cars and our furniture. That's it. And went from living in a pretty nice house on an acre in the woods to living in an apartment. It was a nice apartment, though. About 400 square feet. I saw Kathy a lot more, I'll tell you that. <laughs> there were advantages. One of the things that happened during that time is, is when, when my business was crashing is, is that I couldn't make my payroll. Uh, things got really bad and I couldn't make my payroll. And so one day, uh, Charlie and Kurt come over, and they go, what's going on? I said, man, I'm just having the worst day of my life. Today's payroll, today's payday, I have no money to make payroll. And how much money do you need? I don't remember how much it was. I think it was $15,000. Just about an hour later, they came over with a check. Here, take it. And they made my payroll like four times for me. Lent me money. Here, here, take it. Just take it. And I kept saying, I don't know if I'll ever be able to pay this back. I'm, I'm My finances are out of control. I am free-falling. Whatever. Just take it. It's yours. You know, not one time did they ever say to me, we told you not to do this. Remember, we had this conversation. We tried to talk you out. You know what they did? They never one time repeated, we told you not to do this. You know what they did? They stood behind me. They, they paid my payroll. They, they came over constantly stood by me and when everything was gone they were with me I had to go see an attorney and ended up not using him Charlie went to the attorney's office I said Man, I just can't do this he said I'm going with you I'm going to find the attorney and I'm going to go with you and we sat in the attorney's office and I had sweat pouring off my head and Charlie just put around his arms around me and said this is alright don't worry about this we'll work this through and he walked, walked through it with me and those are friends those are, that's mean, that is fellowship Fellowship is when you make a sacrifice for somebody. I don't mean you don't tell your friends when they're screwing up. There is time to do that. And there's a time when the circumstances have already spoken louder than your friends could ever speak. And you know you screwed up. You already know you should have listened. And your friends are there to help you. I'm going to tell you something. Everybody needs those kind of relationships. And if you you don't have... A community around you that, where you can have that kind of relationship, I can tell you that there's a place in you that wants it. And and so I have two things to say. One, be careful, because if you don't have that healthy relationship, remember the proverb, to a famished man, any bitter thing seems sweet and people start finding that. They, no, listen, they don't really find it. They feed off of dirty water because they're so thirsty that they don't know how to come to the river. And they end up in all kinds of weird relationships. You know, sometimes they're sexual relationships that they regret later. And sometimes they, make, they create emotional ties and bonds that are like just unhealthy. Do you know what I'm saying? Uh, and, and But the, the source of it is that they don't know how to actually have a trance-nothing-hidden relationship with a community of people and so they stay in hiding and they keep their armor on everywhere they go and consequently they're trying to get from a person I've seen people like yeah the woman in the unloved woman she gets a husband you think okay well that's going to be healthy cuz she's supposed to get have a relationship with this guy but she just sucks him dry and she's like he's like or it can be the opposite it's not necessarily it's not a female thing it's not a male thing it's not doesn't have it doesn't have a gender it can be the opposite, where the guy's like, I need you, I, I love you. You know, She has any relationship with anybody else, and, and he's jealous. He's like, oh, she feels trapped, because he's, this unloved man who finally found somebody that can, t- can get through his armor, she's like, "Ah, oh, become like God to this guy. Are you with me? And so it's like you, we need, the community of believers need to be healthy so that there can be holy affection that flows both ways, And people don't end up with unhealthy attachments because of a real way that we're wired. I'm not talking about codependently, but the way that God wired us interdependently—that we need each other and we need the Lord—and it needs to stay in balance. You know, one of the other things I've seen happen and uh, real easily, and I I think that you know all these I can find myself in. I think one of the other things that's happened that happens is that people try to get from the body what they're supposed to get from God that becomes really weird and, and you know it can look a thousand different ways one of the ways it looks in my ministry just because of my particular ministry is that people want to live off of the prophetic words they get from me so they come and they are like hey can you minister to me could you have a prophetic word for me and I'm like off oh, I do or sometimes I don't or whatever I pray for them And then, you know, a week later, they're back again. You know, do you have another prophetic word for me? And I'm like, you know, this is weird. Like, I'm not supposed to take the place of your relationship with God. Do you know what I'm getting at? It's like, the goal for me is to equip you to hear God. So if you keep needing me, like, I'm not doing my job. Because, like, I'm, listen, I'm the phone man. I'll hook up your phone. If you have to keep coming to my house to use mine, that's a commentary on I'm supposed to be equipping the saints to do the work of service, and I equip you with eyes to see and ears to hear, and if you keep using mine, I'm not sure what's wrong with yours. Now, again, this is all in balance because how many know that sometimes God speaks to other people for you and He speaks to you to, for other people and sometimes you're the worst prophet to your own life intentionally because God goes, hey, you know what, if you start being too much this way, God goes, okay, I'll be quiet and I'll just give a word to Bill and the only person who has the word for you is Bill because God's trying to keep us in this balance, this equilibrium where we have a relationship with the body and we have a relationship with Him but when it gets really weird, people are like, okay, well, Chris, Chris gave me a word last week and... And I, I have people come up. This is a true statement. And I hope I'm not offending anybody, but I hope I am alarming you if you're doing this. I have people come up and I give them a prophetic word and they go, yeah, well, yesterday I had a prophetic word from this person and, and three days ago I had a prophetic word from that person for the same thing. And, I went to, and then I find out what they're doing is going from person to, person to person to person to person to get prophetic words about what they're supposed to do. And I'm like, oh, well, wait a second, that's weird. You're supposed to have a relationship this way and that way. How many of you know? Uh, You know what happens? I I watch this too. This is another dynamic. Dynamic. If you get about five or six prophetic words about the same thing, they'll all be in. They'll all be in paradox to the other. Like one guy will say you should go go north, and the other guy will say you should go south, and the other guy will say east and west. And they'll come back and they'll say, you know, you said this and they said this and they said that and they said that. I don't know which one's a prophetic word. Well, they all are. What's God saying to me? Have a relationship with Him. And you don't know which way to go. It's like the God confuses the prophetic people so the person still has to go to God. No, I bet you you've seen that too, huh? But I mean, it's just like, you know, it's like, okay, so what am I saying? Okay, so let's boil it down to this. We need a relationship with the body that's open, honest, and healthy. Okay? Not just with one person. Obviously, it's not, you know, I'm not saying, like, share your stuff with everybody. Like, let's just, you ever have people that, every time you see them, they're telling you about their next sin, and they're telling the other guy in the bathroom, too. And 40 other people, like, oh, my goodness, you know. (laughs) It's like you don't want them to know anything private about you, because you know that they make it their job to tell everybody else about you, too. In fact, it's more fun to confess other people's sins. I've noticed that in my own life. Let me tell you about Kathy's. Don't worry, it won't take long. can't remember any, actually. Yeah. Living with an angel. It ain't always fun. Especially when you're not doing good and you're like, whatever. (laughs) So we need a relationship with people that's healthy. We need a relationship with God that's healthy. You can't have fellowship with a TV set or a podcast. Well, mine you can. And my books will create fellowship in you. You just, you just take them and you put them under your pillow. You need several copies, though. One copy won't do. You can't have fellowship with a podcast. You can't have fellowship with a TV set. I, I talked to someone just the other day and said, your, your, your podcasts, our podcasts are my church. I'm like, huh. Dude, you don't know what church is if that's your church. Can't have fellowship like that. And, you know, we may change, but we don't, have a, we don't have a web school on purpose. We don't have a school ministry on the web on purpose. Now, we may decide that God opens that door for us, but at this point, we don't. I mean, proactively, we've talked through it. We don't want to. Because we want to know the people we're empowering, we want them to have accountability. We want them to have fellowship. We want them to have relationship. You know what I'm saying? We don't want to like equip a bunch of people. Like, what's, it, what's Proverbs say about a fool who shoots everybody? I don't remember. I thought maybe someone's going to quote it. <laughs> it's in there somewhere, though. It's in the Chris Ballatin version. I wrote it in. <laughs> it's. I love when you hear Bill, it's so encouraging it really is I was doing a conference one time I probably, I probably told this story but I was doing a conference I won't tell you where I was doing a conference and I was going to preach on that you're, you're a royal priesthood on you're not sinners but saints you've heard that message how many times? shoot, I wrote a book on it <laughs> And I was coming to the pulpit, and as I got to the uh, right to the steps to come to the pulpit, it's a pretty large conference. Um, this lady came running up to the pastor who's sitting on the front row, and the pastor kind of signaled me to stop. So I'm like, "All right." So he said, "We have a prophetic word before before you share." I'm like, "Okay, great." So I kind of went back over and sat down, and this gal came up, this young gal came up, and she grabbed the mic and she was, you know, really dramatic, which was really cool. and It was totally appropriate in a conference, and she started yelling. God says you're all wearing masks. You're wearing masks. And she went through this whole world about wearing masks and how people were wearing masks and she's going through this whole thing about wearing masks and I'm like, I'm supposed to preach on you're not a sinner but a saint. And she's rebuking the church for wearing masks. Like, you know, she didn't say it this way but like you're all being phonies. So I'm like, oh, that, that set it up. <laughs> that set her up just perfect right there. That's a right word in a right season. So, I'm like, okay, so, the, so, you know, they do that thing, and pastor kind of prays over it, and so it's my turn to come to the pulpit, and I'm like, I'm coming to the, up the steps. It's about this side, I'm coming up the steps, and I, am thinking, what? How can I bring closure to this, so that I can do that? Because this isn't gonna, you know, this isn't gonna feel like we're we're doing we're on the same page. And so I get to the first step, and the Lord said, "Do you know why people wear masks?" I said, "Lord, not right now. I'm trying to fix this problem." <laughs> Can we figure this out a little later? Because I need to like, fix this problem. So I'm serious. I, the Lord says, you know why people wear masks? I said, Lord, not right now. I'm trying to think about how to fix this problem. He said, So I get sexed up. He goes, you know why people wear masks? I said, Lord, can we talk about this tonight? I did. I said, can we talk about this tonight? I'm really focusing on what you want me to say. <laughs> I know, I'm that, I am that stupid at times so literally I get to the platform and I'm walking to the platform and it felt like someone yelled in my head. You know, you see those cartoons where like someone yelled in my, in my head, do you know why people wear masks? And I go, I, so I'm walking the pulpit and I go, okay, why? He, cause, he says, because they don't realize how beautiful they are. He said, he said, he said, nothing's more beautiful than the original. So he said to me, I'm like, oh, that's a good point right there, isn't it? Thank you, Lord. So I stand in the pulpit and I say, you know why people wear masks? (laughs) Whatever. (laughs) You know why people wear masks? Because they don't realize that nothing's more beautiful than the original. And um, people, you know, they, they don't have fellowship because they wear this mask. I don't think the people are, most people are trying to be phonies. I mean, there's a few people once in a while. But I've, people just like, they're afraid that if you know them, you won't like them. You won't think they're beautiful people. And yet God said to me, one of the most powerful words I ever, I ever got was the interpretation of that lady's prophecy. And that was, people wear a mask because they don't realize how beautiful they are. Because if they knew it, they'd take that stuff off so they could have a real fellowship with God and have real fellowship with people. And people wouldn't go, you know, have you ever talked to someone and you, every, time you, every time you meet them, you hug them and cling, 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 cling. Your armors, cling. <laughs> you didn't know what I was saying, huh? Sorry. I know, we got rug marks where people have drugged their swords. I want to say, you're home. You're home. You can put that thing down right now. I was praying for a lady right there for deliverance. This is, I don't know, I'm really bad at time. Sometime. I was praying for this lady, and I said to her, I see this violent, murdering spirit over you in the name of Jesus. I just read because she was just having a problem, so I was trying to and help her. And so I was praying over You have this violent, there's this violent, raging spirit over you, like a spirit of murder, so, you know, I'm breaking the spirit off of her, and she's well, having to get delivered and stuff. And when I get all done, she, she reaches into her purse and she pulls out this knife. I mean, a, a knife. I like knives. I mean, this was a knife. And she goes, Here, I was supposed to hurt you with this, and you can keep it. And I'm like, <laughs> Dude. <laughs> That's not a knife. This is a knife. <laughs> so I carry one now too. You should. See. I carry a gun. <laughs> Jeez, and I don't. There are people that just drag their sword everywhere they go. It's like you know what? They're so defended. You say anything, and they're on defense. It's not good. <laughs> Once in a while, I get lost for words. Actually, I don't ever get lost words, just the ones that come to mind aren't appropriate. So I'll read these, because these are written down. Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation and love, if there's any fellowship, everybody say fellowship, of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion make my joy complete. So how, how do you have fellowship? Here it goes. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness. Turn to your neighbor and say, don't be selfish. I'm not done. I'm not done. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. See, there's selfishness and there's empty conceit. There's conceit that's when you have it and you show it off. And then there's empty conceit when you think you do and you really don't. I was kidding. <laughs> that didn't go over very well, though. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, re- regard one another as more important than yourselves. Man, this is really powerful right here. You know what? This is a standard that we probably all of us could work to, This is probably a standard that none of us have had completely attained to. Would you all agree? Do nothing from selfishness... Oh, except for Kathy. (laughs) I've lived with this woman. She does this. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. Do not merely look out for your own personal needs, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves that was also in Christ who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. Everybody say, emptied himself. Emptied himself. Actually, that word is laid, laid aside, himself. Taking the form of a bondservant and being, made in, and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on the cross. For this reason also... God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow, those who are in heaven and under and on the earth and under the earth, and every time will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So then, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not in my presence only, but also much more in my absence, listen to this, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, you know, if you just take that verse, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, it's a powerful verse. But if you take it in the context of what he's saying, he's talking about working out your salvation in the context of community. Did you notice that? For it's God who is at work work in you, both to will and to to work for his good pleasure. For it's God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do, Do all things without grumbling, disputing. So that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among you appear, among whom you appear as lights in the world. Man, that's a powerful statement. See, when he's talking about working out your salvation, I know that it probably has lots of different uh, applications, but the application that Paul was speaking of in the context here is that you're to work out your salvation in reference to your relationships with other people. Did you get that? Okay, I'll say the same thing again, see if it helps. You're to work out your salvation in the context of relationships with other people. It's like you are to get saved this way and work it out this way. You're to get saved this way. See, you don't get saved through me. I mean, I could preach, but Jesus' only way to Jesus is, the only way to God is Jesus Christ. I, I, can, I can lead you to Jesus Christ, but I'm not Jesus Christ. I am not your Savior, don't want to be. Bill's not your savior. No famous person's your savior. But once you get saved, you work out your salvation amongst the body of Christ. And how do you do that? You get low, you stay humble. And what does humble mean? It doesn't mean you have low self-esteem. It means that you prefer other people and you put their needs above your own and you begin to serve people, not in a weird way so you'll get attention or all the other weird perversions of you know flattery and crazy stuff that we do so that people will like, we can attach ourselves to somebody. But we serve the body in a healthy way where we, we lay our life down for people so that other people could live. And guess what happens? It's like a marriage. You know, it, this, is, this is what Kathy and I tell young couples. We've been telling them this for 30 years. I think we heard it from Bill and Benny. But you know, this is the way marriage works. I, it's my responsibility to make sure all my wife's needs are met. It doesn't mean I meet them. It's just my responsibility to make sure they get met. If I live like that, making sure that, that that the things that she, the passion she has, I get to pastor that. I get to be pastoring and praying, and Lord, you know, she, this is a passion she has. Please, you know, worship leading, passion she has. When I watch Kathy lead worship, it's for you, it's worship. For me, it's watching a woman who has a passion for something her whole life, and, and when, she, when she gets on uh, up here and she leads worship, she's, she's leading, she's... She's worshiping the Father, but she's also expressing a, a passion she's had her whole life. Do you know what I'm saying? There's something else. That, there's another dynamic. I watch Bill with with Brian, and, and you know, there's something that happens when you, you know. You, it's some, and there's another dimension that you don't know about that I know about. And so I, I'm like, you know, you know what I'm saying. And the same thing with me. You know, when when I, when I'm writing books or whatever. I mean, you know, she's. She's, she set aside time for me. She doesn't begrudge me. She's like, you need to finish that book. You need to set some time aside. And I'll do this. I'll help you to do that. I'll make sure that this gets done. This, you know, I know this is a passion of yours. And what I'm getting at is what happens when you live for the other person. You, you say, your responsibility is to make sure she is healthy and happy. I can't make her happy, but I, it's my responsibility. If something's going on, Lord, Holy Spirit, she needs more of you. Sometimes she needs more of her, Holy Spirit, sometimes you know, you understand what I'm saying? And she does the same for me. Instead of me looking out for my needs, she's looking out for my needs. Instead of her looking out for her needs, I'm looking out for her needs. And what ends up happening is, is that I meet. Listen, she meets my needs way better than I would if I was taking care of me. And, I, and I, at least I try. I believe that I meet her needs a lot better than she would if she was taking care of her. There's something that you do for other people. It's something about serving other people. You do it better than you do it for you. You know, when somebody comes over our house, we have the best meals. <laughs> I love for people to come over our house. Man, <laughs> they're like, "You always eat like this." Well, of course. <laughs> There's just something about what you do for other. Come on, you know what I'm saying. I'm not saying it should be any different. There's just something about, you know, you put your finest china, we, we do that, and we have candles, I didn't even know we had candles, so people come over. It's like, this is amazing, you know, it looks like a bonfire around here. <sighs> the best food and everything, you know, the next day we eat leftovers, it, it's good. But there's something that you do for other people, it's like you bring your best. You know, I wouldn't go, I wouldn't put a, I, wouldn't, I don't eat on china when I cook for myself. I don't cook myself, but if I did, I'll, I'm sorry, I'm just trying to be transparent, take my mask off. Dude, I can't cook at all. Everything, if I do anything, I'm like, nothing shall, and by no means harm me. That's what I pray over every meal I even attempt to cook. I like pray everything out of it. This is like missionary training every time I eat something that I cook. But anyway, you get the idea. Like what happens when you come to the body as a contribu- contributor instead of just a consumer? I, I want to just quote one, I think, one more scripture. that. Let's see if I can find it real quick. I know I put it down here. Yeah. Uh, Romans 15.26, For a Macedonian Arcadia, have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. It's really interesting. They're talking about giving money to Macedonia. Can you see that? But the word contribution is actually the word fellowship. For in Macedonia and Arcadia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. But the word contribution, there is another word for contribution also, but the word contribution here is the word fellowship. And what he's saying here is that they've worked out their salvation through their financial giving because they're not just giving money, they're giving of themselves. I don't know if you got what I just said. See, some people give money and other people give themselves. They both put they both put dollars in the basket. But one person gave money and the other person gave themselves. Until you give yourself, you don't know what a joy it is to put money in the basket. Kathy and I have some passions that we give to you. Of course, you know, we, we love to give. Bill and Benny are you know, he'd probably be embarrassed to say this to hear me say this, but Bill and Benny are probably to the biggest giver I've ever known in my whole life, and when they have no money, percentage-wise, till and I, I've never talked to Bill about percentage. But you know, when you live with around somebody or with someone for a long time, you're like, every once in a while, you see a check go. Oh my goodness, these guys have given sacrificially when they had nothing, and taught us. Kathy and I have done that same thing. But we have passions that we give to too. You know, and uh, we we love Africa, so we we give a large amount of money to Africa, but. We don't think of it as money. We think of it as giving ourselves. Not, it's not really measured in dollars. It's like we have... In fact, right now, we have this much passion and we have this much money. <laughs> and so, you know, we talk a lot. Like, I go, man, if this next book sells, I want to... We talked the other day. I said, I want to give more money. I want this orphanage. I got these ideas that I want to see us do. And so it's not... For me, it's not about money. It's about giving myself. But until you give yourself... It's just a discipline. If you haven't experienced the joy of giving, it's because you're contributing with the other word, which I don't know what it is in the Greek. But when you're giving out of fellowship, then you're giving out of your heart and not just out of your discipline. Listen, if you're not giving out of your heart, please keep giving because we need the money. Until you get it right, all right? we've got a budget to meet, and we don't want you to like stop giving while you're trying to figure it out. <laughs> Bill never says this kind of stuff, does he? I wonder if he ever thinks it. That's what I... probably doesn't allow himself to think like this, so I, I think it for him. That's why we're partners. There's things he should think he doesn't think about, so I think it for him. If you don't give from your heart, you know, Jesus is at the, this is amazing to me, Jesus is standing, uh, you know, they must have came forward to bring their offering, whatever, I guess, in the temple, because Jesus is standing at the offering plate. While people give the offering. I've always thought of that. Like I wonder if people, I wonder if Jesus actually appeared in church on Sunday, and he was watching when everybody put in. I wonder how it would affect the offering. It's just a thought, but we know he did it once. Because it says he was watching what people put in. 50 bucks, 25, oh my goodness. You know, some people, when it comes to giving, some people stop at nothing. <laughs> when, they, when some people get to heaven, they haven't given enough to put a down payment on a harp. <laughs> so there's Jesus, you know, he's standing out the offering. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't make those up. I actually read them somewhere. <laughs> I like him though. But anyway, so Jesus is watching people put money in the offering. That's kind of unnerving that he's actually watching the offering. Fifty bucks, hundred bucks, five bucks. Come on, cheapskate. I blessed the heck out of your business last week, and you give me ten bucks. Okay, we'll see what you get next. Year. Because it says give and you shall we receive. Okay. And then some lady comes up and drops, I don't know what it would equal to, a dollar, a quarter, whatever. How much? Two cents. Two cents. Jeez. <laughs> that makes it even more profound. <laughs> she drops two cents into the offering plate and Jesus stops the offering. Uh, stop, everybody. Wait, I want to call your attention to something. And you can imagine the lady's probably nervous. Because she She just dropped two cents in there and she wonders if Jesus knows her situation. That's my thinking. That's not in the Bible. It's just the movie I watched when I was reading it. (laughs) It happens to me all the time. I'm I'm reading the Bible and the movie starts. And I don't even know if it's the Holy Spirit or just my imagination. But (laughs) I say it, don't matter which one it is. And so he stops the offering. And he goes, hey, look, stop everybody. See what this lady put in? Everyone's like, well, it sounded like change. <laughs> I'm thinking, it sounded like change. You don't want to go first if you're just putting change in. You want to get some dollars built up there so no one knows you just put change in. And all the people who do that are shaking their head yes. And Jesus said, <laughs> sorry, I'm so crazy tonight. Jesus said, that lady put in more than y'all. Because she gave her last. See, she gave out of fellowship. That lady gave. She didn't give money. She gave her heart. And you know what? Until you've done that, you don't have any business talking about it. I'm not talking about sacrifice, because lots of people sacrifice, but they still don't do koinonia. I'll just give till it hurts. No, give of yourself. That's different than giving till it hurts. Get a passion for what you're doing and give it because you want to, because you have a passion for it. And then at times when you give when it hurts, it really feels good. It's like going to the dentist and it hurts so good. I don't know if that was a good example, but... That was a bad example. But there is a good point in there. And that is this. Fellowship affects every area of your life. It affects your relational context, the way you talk to people. It affects the way you serve people. It affects the way what you come to church for. It affects the way you live in, at home and with your family. It affects the way that you give yourself and the way that you give your stuff and the way you give your money. And if you've never had that experience, some of you young believers in here you know, I'm not condemning if you haven't had that experience. I'm saying there's a place you haven't seen yet. There's a place you haven't you haven't experienced yet. And once you experience that, you'll just be addicted to God's presence and fellowship. And if you'd stand, I'd like to just pray over us.